say for a moment, I love the music of our church. I appreciate it so much. I, sometimes I don't always say that up here, but I just, it's a lot of work, the time, the dedication, and God bless you all for it. It just blesses my heart. Thank you. Other people I'm thankful for, too, are our teenagers. I don't know if they're thankful for me, but I'm very, very thankful for them, and I get to teach them every Wednesday in our ambassador program, and it's an honor, and it's a blessing. It really is a privilege. It's a wonderful, wonderful youth group, but if you know anything about teaching young people or VBS or Sunday school or anything else, is whenever you're trying to impart God's word to them, sometimes it goes right back towards you. It goes, oh, I think I need to learn this as well. And, you know, for some time, the young people have been studying on Wednesday nights about the book of Philippians and the mind of Christ. It's been a wonderful study. I needed it. But through that study, something kept nagging in my mind. It created an important question. If there's indeed a mind of Christ, which we see in Philippians 2, what is the negative, the antithesis of a Christ-like spirit? You know, we see the mind of Christ in chapter 2 was submissive. It was sacrificial. It was selfless. And hey, we could preach a whole sermon on that alone. We're not going to do that, but we could, right? But many of us are familiar with that concept. So again, I think it would be beneficial to all of us this morning to know what is the stark contrast to having the mind of Jesus Christ. And the reason why I know it's important to know is because God put it in his word. Look at verse 13 again. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Amen and amen. And then a random verse. Do all things without murmurings and disputings. It's a simple but powerful truth that the opposite of a Christ-like spirit is having an ungrateful heart to God the Father. I mean, any time, look at Romans 1. I might have it on the board here in a minute. See the digression of man, the horrors that spawn from his depraved mind. And note that it all stems from a single sprout, the discontented state of an ungrateful heart. I'm going to read it to you. It says in verse 21, Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. That verse, neither were thankful. Is that not our country? This world is filled with miserable people. And if you go online, you'll see every kind of personality imaginable. Try to tackle and answer the question, why is there darkness all around us? Why is there so much suffering? And if you ever really want to make people angry, I like trolling people. Actually, that's my brother, but I do too. We're brothers. We like, if you ever want to really just simplify but infuriate, discussions on the subject of why they're suffering in the world. Oh boy, they hate it when you say this. Just show them the clear fact that man does not regard God. They don't regard his presence, and they do not regard his provision. Which leads to our text this morning. And to be quite frank, as I said a moment ago, this verse 14 for me just seems to kind of come out of nowhere. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I read the Word of God, there's just scriptures that just seemingly seem random, out of nowhere. I want Anton preached a sermon on Matthew being called. It's just one verse. Matthew sitting at the receipt of customs. Jesus said, follow me. And he left all, he rose, and he followed him. That's the whole verse. You can get that sermon for four ninety nine ninety nine in the back, so just so you know. Later. But I always thought that's so random. But nothing is random in the Word of God. It's the same way here in Philippians 2. You're going over this absolutely beautiful picture of Christ. It's astounding. It's wonderful. It's glorious. And then out of the blue, 
Paul just throws out this bizarre warning and admonition. But we know it's no accident. In fact, Paul was contrasting what he had just said a moment ago. He and the Holy Spirit illustrate to us the mind of Christ. And then, just as important, he shows us what would turn us away from having that same mind. And we'll confess to you that this is an unusual message for Sunday morning. It is. But this is something, frankly, that the Lord has been dealing with in my life. And I pray there's someone else who needs this more, just as much as me in this admonition. And I pray that it blesses all of us this morning. Because this is the full picture of what God wants us to see about our mind and our heart. And the first thing we see in this text is, number one, a lesson about complaining. Complaining. The word in verse 14, do all things without murmurings. That word murmur simply means to complain. But here's the problem. It's a tricky word. It's a tricky word, isn't it? I mean, we all complain. I do. I don't know if any of you do, but I do. I complain. So when we hear a message like this, we're not exactly sure what to take away from it. But it's simpler than you may think. God specifically chose this word, murmuring, for a reason. Because, see, there's two types of complaining. One is simply stating a fact. It's hot today. My leg hurts. This line is long. This food tastes funny. There are too many ads on YouTube. The button's too small to hit skip ad. It's a scam. And on and on it goes. Right? Relatively harmless, inane observations about our day today. Even sometimes it can be important. Like if you receive a rat in your plate of food that you ordered. I didn't order extra protein. You know, this costs extra. No, but what do you do? You get a rat in your food, you issue a what? A complaint to the management. Everyone does that. But there's a second category. Murmurings. And quite simply, a murmur is a complaint that is laced with an accusation. It's making an observation while pointing a finger. And most people, when they complain about something, they're complaining about someone. This line is too long. I wonder what the buffoons are doing back there in the DMV. What is this, run by monkeys? My food is taking forever. What, are they asleep back there? It's always attached to people, right? And while these are seemingly harmless accusations, the Lord is very aware of how deceptive and destructive murmuring can be. Because what happens when you start pointing fingers, not at someone behind the counter? What if you start pointing fingers at your brothers and sisters in Christ? What happens when you start pointing fingers at your spouse? Start pointing fingers at your children? Or even start pointing at God? What kind of accusations, murmurings, will we be directing toward them? You see, Satan knows that if people start pointing at each other, they'll eventually start pointing up. And that kind of complaining leads to a discontent heart. And if you notice here, our Lord leaves no room for interpretation on how he feels about this subject. It says in verse 14, do all things, all things without murmurings. That word without means isolation. So what God was saying, that the believer is to be completely and totally isolated from murmurings and disputings, Paul said in another phrase, let it not be once named among you. The issue is complaining is a proven cathartic experience. It can feel good and therefore be considered a good thing to do. It can be addictive. It can be comforting. It could even be soothing in a strange way. But God does not want us to be deceived. It is a delicious poison, but it is a poison nonetheless. And I personally believe, personally believe, 
that the greatest element that is destroying our nation is not vanity, it's not vice, it's not depravity or despair, it's simply Romans 1, neither were thankful. We're not thankful. I don't know about you, but you know, I, I don't have TikTok. It's not my thing. But I didn't really realize this, but YouTube has something called YouTube Shorts. Guess what? Basically the same thing. Oh, I don't have TikTok, but I watch YouTube Shorts. And the problem is YouTube has an algorithm, all these social media. Can I preach on social media? Let's just preach on that this morning. No, I won't do that. Tinfoil hat. Social media always is trying to create an algorithm for you. They're trying to figure you out, send advertisers your way, try to manage content. Um, It's not satanic at all. It's fine. It's totally fine. Totally normal. But one time I clicked on how to replace a light bulb. Okay, I'm not that, I'm not a DIY guy, okay? Sarah will tell you I can fix some things. I was just trying to look up how to fix something. But then after that, my YouTube algorithm was overwhelmed with how to regrout your tile, how to lay a roof, how to build a foundation. I'm not going to do any of those things. And for months, I was going through all this stuff. I don't know how to do this. One time I looked up a medical condition. Calm down. It's not a big one. It was nothing bad. It was just a little medical condition. And I looked it up on YouTube. And then all of a sudden, my algorithm was flooded with 10 ways that you could be dying. That's literally what the video says. Like, well, I got to click on this one. <laughs> Thumbs up. <laughs> and for months, Sarah looks like, what's wrong with your, why are you, what do you look like? No, it's the algorithm. It's not my fault. I looked up one thing. And I don't know what happened recently, but now my YouTube algorithm is ruined because it's just constant panels of liberal teachers talk to conservative parents and feminist debate with conservative preachers, and this panel talks about politics, and this panel talks about racism and sexism, and it's just all these people yelling and screaming at each other, constantly arguing, constantly bickering, and that's all my YouTube algorithm, so I just, I just put my phone down, I just look at it, so it's, it's, it's useless to me now. It's ruined. And there's something that we have to understand about our Christian life, that there is a power and a force working in our lives to try to help us to be different. To cultivate the mind of Christ. These people do not have that. They don't have that hope. And we know that it's the Holy Spirit working in us, like we just read a moment ago in verse 13. But you have to also understand that there's another power at work trying to get us to have the opposite mind. And if there's one objective that the enemy wants you to do more than anything, anything else, it's simply to take your eyes off of God. The method doesn't matter. The mode doesn't matter. All that does is the results. Satan will do everything he can to get your eyes off of God and your eyes on something or someone else. Anything down here. He will first try and distract you. He will try to get you to notice the successful and bountiful lives of other Christians or even lost people around you. He will get you to notice how some people just seem to be in perfect health. And they have that fulfilling career. They have that blessed marriage or those beautiful children or that incredible house or that exciting life. He will cause you to get your eyes off the endless smiles, the infinite chorus of laughter, to covet the bottomless bank accounts, the never-ending parade of blessings that you don't have. And then, oh, then, he has you. Because then, once he distracts you, then he can discourage you. Then come the murmurings, the complaints with the accusation. Then you begin to point your fingers and say the most damaging, destructive words, it's not fair. It's not fair that I can't have a single day of good health. 
It's not fair that I work and I toil and I struggle and I don't even have an ounce of the material blessing that others have. It's not fair that I am faithful and I am dutiful and I am devoted and some thrive and I am barely hanging on. It's not fair that I don't have that marriage. It's not fair that I don't have that promotion. It's not fair that I don't have that lifestyle. And then all of a sudden, you find yourself pointing fingers not to people, but to God. You ever notice that God always gets the blame, but none of the praise? I remember as a very young teenager, I mean very young, like I was not a theologian at the time, nor am I now, but I was not a theologian then especially, but I remember when 9-11 happened. I remember, where was God during 9-11? And as a kid, I thought, where he was yesterday and the day after. And what I like to ask these people, like, where were you when God made the the sun to shine and provided you food and clothes and protection and comfort and safety and salvation? Where were you when Jesus Christ was hanging on the cross for your sins? Everyone loves to point fingers at God. Where was God? He is where he's always been, and he has always been faithful. And I understand when lost people say that. They have no perspective. Where was God? But that should not be the case with God's people. In fact, Paul said that we are to be totally isolated from this kind of murmuring. Now, listen, I'm going to say right now, there's a difference between complaining and stating your burdens. Over and over again in the scriptures, we are, we're not suggested. We're commanded both to state and to bear one another's burdens to each other and to lay them before God. It's non-negotiable. To do so is to be in obedience of what he has expected of all of us. To not do so is disobedience. The difference is, is when we murmur and we complain, we lament our burdens and we point fingers and we say life is not good. But when we are bearing each other's burdens, we lay them, we name them, but then when we point, we point up and we say, God is good. To be content is not to be blind to your burdens, but to acknowledge your blessings. The only possible way that we can ever bear the burdens of this life is not to elicit the failed and tired method of murmuring, but rather exercise gratitude to God, especially in the face of trials. The reason why this world is so miserable is because pointing fingers is all that they do because it's all that they have. Ah, it's white supremacy. Ah, it's capitalism. Ah, it's this election. Ah, it's this president. Ah, it's just the colonial. It's all these things. They have no hope. But we have received the mind of Christ and we know not to look around. We know to look up. There may be someone here, maybe, who's inconvenienced, saying, you know, Andy, I just, I don't see what the big deal is. What's the problem with murmuring? What, 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 is, your, what is your deal? What's the big deal? Okay, that's fair. All right. It's not what, what murmuring is. The big deal is what murmuring leads to, which leads us to our second lesson this morning. We saw a lesson first of complaining, but also we see number two, a lesson of contending. Look at verse 14 again. Do all things without murmurings and disputings. Uh Uh-oh. See, Paul knew the pattern that occurred in churches. He loved this church. This was a blessed church, but people are people, and he knew human nature. That when people get their eyes off of God, the only next thing is people begin to look at each other, and that's where trouble begins. Because when people start to complain, they start to contend. 
Many times when you see God's people begin to argue and dispute, it's because one or the other party has got their eyes off of the wrong or off of the right thing. The same is true in friendships, in relationships, in marriages. It all stems from gratitude, getting your eyes on the right thing. Now, please take care to note that when we speak of disputing, the Bible says that there is a kind that is not only accepted, but it is encouraged. Debate thy cause with thy neighbor themselves. You see, there's the kind of disputing that creates communication and therefore restoration. That's good. If you have a problem, go to your neighbor. Talk to them about it. But the disputing that we see that is going on in this church, and we see in a lot of churches and a lot of people, is when they're pointing a finger. They're pointing a finger without extending a hand. They're not seeking a solution. They're only seeking condemnation. And I think there's no greater example of this than in Exodus. The children of Israel almost drove Moses insane because of the distraction of the murmuring and the disputing in the wilderness. They did nothing but criticize and complain. And their murmuring, their disputing was an exhibition of carnality and the antithesis of the Christ-like spirit that God was trying to develop in his people. You know, the night of redemption from the Egyptians was barely over when Israel's murmurings and disputing began. Seeing themselves trapped between Pharaoh's army and the Red Sea, the Israelites, this is a funny phrase, sarcastically, they remarked to Moses, because there were no graves in Egypt, hast thou taken us away to die in the wilderness? They did not know what Moses knew, that very soon God was going to deliver them. And, you know, if that was all, that would be fine. That would be fine. But the Israelites murmured a lot. I'm going to have some verses up here on the screen. And I just want you to see a pattern. Just just see this pattern of murmuring and disputing. When they came to Marah, they were thirsty. Exodus 15, verse 23. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink of the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, the name of it was called Marah. And the people murmured, uh uh-oh, there's that word, against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? Notice God calls it murmuring. They weren't asking a question. They were pointing a finger. God knew their hearts. Also, they murmured when they came to the wilderness, and they were hungry, in chapter 16, and verse 1. And they took their journey from Elam, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came unto the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after their parting out of land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said unto them, Would to God we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. This is unbelievable. While we sat by the flesh pots, and we did eat bread to the full, for ye have brought us forth into this wilderness to kill. Whoa! To kill this whole assembly with hunger. Are you kidding me? Do you see there's a difference between complaining? They said, look at that. Look what it says. For ye have brought us forth. This is your fault, Moses. You have brought us out here to kill us and our children. Nice. Wonderful murmuring. And notice what Moses says in chapter 16, verse 7. And in the morning, then you shall see the glory of the Lord. For that he heareth your murmurings, he hears you, against the Lord. And what are we that ye murmur against us? And Moses said, This shall be when the Lord shall give you in the evening flesh to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, for that the Lord heareth your murmurings, which you murmur against him. What are we? Your murmurings are not against us, but against the Lord. There's that pointing the finger. 
The Israelites chided with Moses at Rephidim when they were thirsty. Exodus chapter 17, verse 1. And all the congregation, children of Israel, journeyed into the wilderness of sin. After their journeys, according to the commandment of the Lord, pitched and repped them. There's no water for people to drink. Wherefore the people did what Moses had said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said unto them, Why? Try with me. Wherefore you tempt the Lord. And the people thirsted there for water. And the people murmured, There it is again, murmured against Moses and said, Wherefore is it that thou hast brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our cattle with thirst? They're doing it again. What is wrong with these people? Pointing fingers and disputing. You all know this one. When Moses stayed so long on the mount, you know, they complained, they panicked, they forced Aaron. Chapter 32, verse 1. And when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mount, the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said unto him, Up, let's pray to the Lord. Oh, wait, no. Is that what it says? No. Make us gods, which shall go before us. For as for this Moses, can you hear the venom in that? This Moses. For as this Moses, the man, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we wot not what has become of him. Unbelievable. One of my favorite, a lot of teenagers know this. One of my favorite is Numbers chapter 11, verse 4. Oh, God's people complained about manna. When the people complained, it displeased the Lord. By the way, you know how the Lord feels about it? There it is right there. When the people complained, it displeased the Lord. And the Lord heard it, and his anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burnt among them, and it consumed them in the uttermost part of the camp. And the people cried unto Moses. And Moses prayed unto the Lord, and the fire was quenched. Whew, okay, maybe they'll learn the lesson. And he came to the place Taborah because of the fire of the Lord burnt among them. And the mixed multitude that was among them fell a lusting, and the children of Israel also wept again. And said, who shall give us flesh to eat? We remember the fish, which we did eat in Egypt freely. The cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. And now our soul is dried away. It's like children, I have nothing to eat. There is nothing at all besides this manna before I, I'm sorry, I can't help but laugh. This is absolutely absurd. We remember the fish. Do you remember the taskmaster's whip? Do you remember the bondage, the slavery, your children being thrown into the Nile? Do you remember that? No, no, no. All they remember is what Satan wanted them to see. The earthly things. They got their eyes off of God. And they say here, there is nothing at all besides this manna. There's no, we have nothing, God. Well, besides your provision and your love and your bountiful provision. But other than that, we have nothing at all. And I could go on and on and on again. I gave the guys a lot of verses a lot of verses. But you know what? I'm not going to do that to them because I have a lot. But I will read one more to you. One more. It's in Numbers chapter 21, verse 4. After the Holy Spirit just strips away the veneer and exposes the twin sins of murmuring and disputing for what they really were, it says, And they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Edom. And the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. And the people spake against God and against Moses. Have ye brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Are you sick of hearing this? I'm sick of hearing it. Are you brought us up to Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread, neither is there any water. And our soul loatheth this light bread. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much people died. Over and over and over and over again, these people did nothing but murmur and complain. Were you getting exhausted listening to all these verses? How do you think Moses felt? How do you think the Lord felt with this constant disputing and arguing and complaining to him and not being thankful for the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, the manna, the protection, the goodness? 
But what was the problem? They had their eyes on the wrong thing. That's the pattern. Because murmuring leads to disputing. And complaining leads to contention. And that's what exactly the enemy wants. And our flesh, by the way. This is all just our ugly nature. Again, the opposite of the mind of Christ. I remember one time working at Jupiter Medical, which was one of my favorite times in the private sector. Dollar General, (laughs) McDonald's. But working at Jupiter Medical Center with Rick Hatcher. Love you, man. was a great time. A lot of laughs, a lot of tears, but more laughter than tears most of the time. And I really enjoyed it. But man, oh man, Rick will tell you, there was this one guy, and all he could do was complain, complain, complain. And it wasn't just complaining, but everything was a fight. Everything was a battle. Everything had to turn into a bait. If you bought a can of Coke, you know the soda company is ruining and creating obesity in our country, and you shouldn't be putting money toward that. I'm like, okay, 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 okay. Every single thing that you would do, he would look at you and find a reason to argue and debate and just fight you on. I mean, if I so much, one time I, one time I had my phone and I was just reading my Bible and he goes, oh yeah, you know, when they wiped out all the people of Philistine, you know, the Israelites, blah, 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 he went into this big, huge argument. I could just leave me alone. Rick, Rick, get your boy. Uh, but Rick knows my pain. He knows. I'm not going to name the guy. But he was lost, terribly lost. So one day I had enough. I was sick of it, okay? And I looked at him and I said, so-and-so, I'll call him Rick. No, I was like, so-and-so, aren't you tired? Aren't you exhausted? This is all you do. You just argue and you complain and you just look at the world in such a, just a terrible state and everything's against you and everything's awful and life is black and dreary. Aren't you just tired of fighting and arguing and disputing all the time. You know what he said? It's all I have. It's all I have. And you know, for someone who does not know the Lord, that may be true. But it's not all that we have. It's not all the Israelites had despite what they said. We have no reason to fight and quarrel with one another, seeing we are so provided and blessed by the Lord, there's no time, there's no room for envy or strife or derision or jealousy or pride, seeing that all of us are on the same journey in the wilderness together, following the Lord. More importantly, we do all these things without murmurings and disputings for a much higher purpose than just for each other. I want you to remember all of this about God's people, all this annoying stuff that you heard a moment ago for this next and final point. And it's really the reason why I want to preach this tonight, and I'll be quick on this last one. But this is the most important lesson of all. We saw a lesson of complaining and then one of contention, but finally we see, number three, a lesson of contrasting. Of contrasting. Look at verse 14 again. Do all things without murmurings and disputings that... There's a reason. There's always a reason that God tells us to do what we do, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom ye shine as lights in the world. Wow. You know, this seems so obvious at times, but for me personally, sometimes that I forget the simple but powerful truth that the primary way 
to show Christ in a dying world is not through our words, but through our actions. You know, what does it matter if we are people who are constantly murmuring and disputing? Everyone else does it. What's the big deal? What's the big deal if we constantly murmur and complain and dispute and argue? It doesn't matter because of each other, but because of who we represent. Because of what and who people see. Everything we do, everything we do goes back to God. Because again, this is the mind of Christ. Christ, everything he did was submission and service and sanctification and selflessness and sacrifice. This was the heart of our Lord Jesus. And though he loved his people, everything he did, he did not do for them. He did it for the honor and the glory of his Father. And that can never, ever happen with us unless we have a heart that is filled with gratitude toward him. God's ultimate plan has always been for his people to be a city on a hill that cannot be hid. I really do honestly love the name of our church. You know, there's First Baptist, there's this, there's, all these, there's Temple Baptist, there's all these clever names. But I love the name Beacon Baptist Church because it perfectly encapsulates how God sees us and how he desires us to be in this world. We're supposed to be a light. And not just any light, but a light that shines in the darkness. It's not a light that we possessed because of our good works. It's not a light that we attained because of our accomplishments or our abilities. It is simply a light that we undeservingly received because of Christ and the cross. Some of you this morning may not know Jesus Christ as your Savior. You have to understand he died on the cross so that you could have your sins forgiven. And so that he can, as we sang a moment ago, that he can come into your heart. And when he does, you now bear that light in your heart, and he desires others to see it and accept him as well. Think about that. What an incredible privilege that we have been given to carry the light of God in our hearts. But I will tell you this morning that it's impossible, impossible to shine the light of Christ unless you already have the mind of Christ. The Savior of the world cannot be seen in a people who are constantly murmuring and disputing. A light cannot be comprehended if it's always trying to imitate the darkness. That's what's at stake here. And I love this in verse 15. Notice it says in this verse, it says, a crooked and perverse nation. Do you ever hear verses and you just think America, right? It just, it just strikes your heart. A crooked and perverse nation. You see, the world is already twist, twisted. It's bent, out of order. It doesn't take five seconds to go online and ruin your algorithm to see that that's the case. So what are you going to do? You show the world another way. You show them the opposite of everything they've ever seen. You show them the contrast. I've heard arguments a million times over the years. You have too. You've heard it a million times of people saying, well, how do you know your religion is the right one? There's so many out there. How do you know? You know, I really don't argue with those people anymore. Again, JMC, Rick knows. We, 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 we don't argue with those people anymore. You know what I just say? Because only Jesus has the answer for my sin. Because only Jesus Christ offered me a relationship and not a religion. Because only Jesus Christ offered me pardon and not penance. Only Jesus Christ offered me the straight and narrow way. Only Jesus Christ 
showed me the contrast. And now we're supposed to show others what Christ has showed us. It's not our job. It's not our job to bargain, argue, convince, persuade Jesus Christ to others. We simply show him. A light does not fret on being sought. It is only focused on being shown. And nothing humbles a man more than to hear a Christian say, I have enough. And nothing honors God more than to hear his child look up and say, you are enough. To me, there's no greater evidence of a changed heart than one that is filled with gratitude to God. Because you, you look around our society, and that is not what you see. And sadly, you don't see that in many churches as well. The teenagers, our young people, it's, one of the, it's a wonderful, sweet, godly, hungry group of young people. You pray for them. Because they go through a lot. But in their sincerity and in their earnestness, they constantly ask me, Andy, how can I reach people for Christ? And I always tell them to, yes, speak Christ, but you have to show Christ. There's a rule in preaching, a common rule, not everyone follows it, that you avoid being the hero of your own story. This is not a good taste. When I was five, I reached 500 people for Christ. Amen. Let's pray. What was the point of that message? In preaching, you just, you just don't make yourself, as much as possible, the hero of your own story. It's just not in good taste. I'm going to break that rule today. Um, when I worked at Office Depot, if you worked ever in retail, there's so much complaining. Oh, my goodness. Customers, employees. When you work retail, there's just so much complaining. It's dark and dismal spirit. If you, if, has anyone worked retail in here? I'm just curious. If you worked retail, raise your hands. God bless you. You know. And if you don't know if you worked retail, if you ever had to ask someone about our rewards program, congratulations, you worked in retail. That's retail. <laughs> That's it. There's so much complaint, so much negativity. And one day, when I was in my master's year at Crown, we had to divvy up who was going to work Black Friday. So our manager just had this really sick tradition of just sitting us all in front, and he would just point. He already knew the answer. He just liked seeing the hope go from your eyes. He's a sick man. And so he'd say, so-and-so, 5 o'clock, so-and-so, 8 o'clock, so-and-so. He would just, just list it. And every time, I mean, this guy's complaining, this guy's complaining, this guy got mad. This person started arguing like he was at court. Now, you don't understand. I have to do this, and I, have to, I don't care. You're coming at 5 a.m. And they looked at me, he goes, Blaylock, 3 a.m. And there's something that my uncle always taught me to say, Uncle Rick. He said it all the time, as you just look and you say, I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to be here. I, I, uncle Rick always says two things. I love you, man. If you're listening, Uncle Rick, I love you, man. And he always said, hey, how are you doing? I'm, just, I'm glad to be here, man. I'm glad to be here. So I looked at my boss and I said, glad to be here, boss. And he goes, that's what I like. <laughs> that's the right attitude. Good job, Blaylock. Let me tell you something. This man was as lost as they come. No desire for God, no desire for church, no desire for anything sembling a life in Jesus Christ. And he looked at everyone else and he said, that is a Christian. How would he know? His whole life, his whole background, you have to understand, he knew nothing of what it means to be a Christian or exposed to it at all. And yet he said, that's a Christian. How does he know? Because even the lost know that a child of God is supposed to be different. They're supposed to be thankful. He knows that a child of God is supposed to shine. 
Now, just so I'm not the hero of my own story, you know what happened at 3 a.m.? I complained. So, there you go. I was spiritual for about 15 minutes until I actually had to work, you know, (laughs) work there. And that's the point. Are we perfect? Absolutely not, especially this guy right here. But notice in this verse 15, it says that we are to be blameless and harmless. Do you know that that doesn't mean perfect? It can be described as guileless and sincere. This word, akiros, blameless, was used by Greeks in everyday conversation to refer to unalloyed metal or wine that was unmixed with water. In other words, akiros speaks of the real thing, the genuine thing. And this can only happen when you live a sincere life without murmurings and disputing, one of contentment and compassion. And once again, Satan knows what's at stake. If he can paint God's people in an ugly light, or at least appear to be no different than the world, then the light loses its power. The metal loses its shine. It becomes dull and ineffectual. Some of you know the character named Hobab, unfortunate name in the Bible, Moses' brother-in-law. And he asked him, come with us, come travel with us. And Hobab was like, I'm good. I will not go. A lot of commentators, some people think it's because he wanted to go back home. Some think it was because of the Egyptians and being pursued by them still. But many think he was Moses' brother-in-law. And he looked at the testimony of God's people, the murmurings and the disputings and the arguings, and he said, I will not go. No, thank you. Do we have an alloy testimony? You want to know the only danger we pose in leading people away from Christ? The one ingredient that will cause people to kind of say, no thanks, I'm good, is if we conduct ourselves in murmurings and disputings. If we live our lives with an ungrateful heart. Because if we do, guess what? We're just like everybody else. We're just like the world. But the good news is if we endeavor to have the mind of Christ like what you see in this chapter. If you purpose to always be thankful regardless of your circumstances, we will find ourselves blameless and harmless, sincere and without guile, and we will shine as a brilliant testimony for God's honor and glory. I'll say this and I'll be done. A lot of people have asked Dad over the years if he ever was interested in doing certain things. Pastor, do you ever want to start a Christian school no. Same as, without hesitation, dad's like, no, nothing bad in Christian schools, but that was not in dad's heart. I was a kid, I'm like, dad, do you want to start a Christian school? He goes, no, eat your Wheaties, be quiet. Uh, no, okay. There's some things he just probably will never do. And I asked him once before, I don't know if any of you have asked him this, but I have. I said, dad, you ever thought about writing a book that isn't about me, by the way? You're not authorized to use any stories of me at all. But I always wondered, like... You all agree, I think. He has a great mind. I think he would be great if he wrote a book. I think it would be fascinating. And he said the same thing. No, eat your Wheaties. That was last week. Um, (laughs) But he said, if I did, if I ever did write a book, I asked him, "If if you did, what would it be? And without hesitation, he said, I would write a book and I would, I would title it Gratitude. Is there one thing that I can pass on as a pastor? This is what dad said, being a pastor for 37 years. If there's one thing that I could pass on to my people and any people is that everything comes from gratitude, from thanksgiving. I was like, wow. And if you live that life, 
that life of thankfulness to God, you will be a contrast to this world that they will it'll be impossible to ignore. You will see blessings you've never known, and you will have a source of strength that you've never known. May Christ shine in all of us because he's worthy and because we are so thankful to him. And all God's people said, amen. The heads bowed and eyes closed, no one looking around this morning. I told you this was a very unusual message for a Sunday morning, but something the Lord has absolutely been dealing with in my heart. And I asked with no one looking around, you say, Brother Andy, I am a child of God. I have received as chapter 2 all of these wonderful things to enjoy in Jesus Christ, but the Lord has spoken to my heart in some way. Would you raise your hand as a testimony to the Lord? The Lord has spoken to my heart. Amen. God bless you. God bless you. Many, many hands. I mentioned a moment ago, there may be someone here this morning. There's not a lot to be thankful for or hopeful for when you look around the darkness of this world. But you have to understand a beautiful and brilliant truth that misses so many that despite the darkness in your life and in this world all around you, there is a God who made you and loved you so much he sent his son to die for you that he could save you and you could have that light in your heart as well. And I'm not going to call you out or embarrass you, but is there anyone in this room this morning who says, Brother Andy, I just, I don't know if I've ever received that light, I've ever received Christ my Savior, would you please pray for me? That's all I want to do. Raise your hand and just say, Andy, would you please pray for me? I'm not sure. God bless you. God bless you. Thank you. I have a moment of invitation. And as we sing, I encourage you that the Lord has spoken to your heart to do business with him. Everything comes from our perspective. And what God wants us to see is to see him, to see his goodness, to see his presence. And then to take that to the world outside of these doors to truly be a beacon and a light. A city on a hill cannot be hid. And that's what he wants for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time together. I ask, Lord, you do what I cannot do and just work on our hearts, work on my heart. That despite what is going on in my life or my loved ones or the ones I cherish deeply or this country or this world, no matter what is going on in our life, you are always good. The world needs to see that. They need to see the hope that lieth in us. Bless the invitation, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. On behalf of everyone at Beacon Baptist Church, we thank you for joining us today. Our prayer is that your heart and life has been impacted through the biblical truths of this message. If you have questions or would like more information, please contact us through our website, at beaconbaptistchurch.org. That's beaconbaptistchurch.org. May the Lord bless you.